Well, good morning. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. We're waltzing our way through Mark. Uh, Steve gave me a deadline to finish by August. So, when did you actually start? Yeah, basically, we started with Jesus. And uh, we've been going ever since. No, I'm kidding. Does anybody know? I don't know. It was after summer. Okay. Yeah. I think that's right. So we did, uh, what's the first? We did Ephesians. And then we did David. And then we've done Mark. Actually, I don't know. Let's see what y'all think. I'd love for our next one to do Great Battles of the Bible. Wouldn't that be fun? I mean, just get into the blood and gore. There's other stuff to it, too. But uh, just every time somebody got their butt kicked. um, Oh, just wait for Sunday. We're doing Deborah. And you know how the guy dies in Deborah? Yeah, he gets a... a, uh, a yeah, a ten stake uh, uh, through through the skull. Um, so anyway, I, I, does that answer your question? I know we... Uh, yeah, yeah. For the shortest gospel of... It's embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. But... It's uh, it's good stuff. I hope a um, lot lot of lot of stuff that Jesus put in. You may not believe it, but we're in the final stretch of Mark. Jesus is making his final journey to Jerusalem. He has been. We cover about three three and a half years of his his public uh, rabbi ministry. And each year he has gone to Jerusalem for Passover. And this will be the final time. And there's a, just a lot of pressure. I mean, you could feel it in, in just a few verses. We're going to have this, this real dark moment where everybody realizes this is not going to end well. But the disciples are nervous. You know, please remember as best we understand, these guys are young. They're late teenage, early 20s, you know, Peter being the old guy. So this is a lot for them. Although I say that, and then I'll correct myself, you know, life expectancy in the first century, 40, 50, I mean, you may have a few outliers, but people aren't living too, too long. So at 33, Jesus is considered an elder. Which, looking at you all in the gray hair, you'd all be dead. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, uh, if, if we keep using the excuse, oh, I'm like the disciples, I can't get it, I don't know if it works anymore. But let's pick up at verse 28. Well, those are way back in Genesis. So that's not in the time of the Gospels. And the reason they do that is they, they're trying to explain to you that people in the beginning were more 
real, more people. They were more what God made us. If you look at the generations, each generation gets weaker and weaker. And that's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, you look at our great-grandparents that settled West Texas. Man, they would laugh at us, right? Like, oh my gosh. You know, I fought two Comanches before breakfast. Uh, you know, went, took care of the cattle, dug a well. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're like, oh, what am I going for lunch? <laughs> so, uh, uh, just think what our kids will be like. Well, what I wanted is what kind of supplements they were taking. There's something. <laughs> something. Uh, but let's look at verse 28. Uh, so Jesus has just finished this long conversation about the rich man understanding that if you have alternatives to God, chances are you're going to use them. And wealth can often be that. So you don't turn to God, you turn to what you can do. And it's it's a problem. So Peter, again, being the oldest in 28, says, Then Peter began to mention all that he and the other disciples had left behind. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. So again, this is youth. This is kind of silliness. Uh, The disciples certainly have given up their fishing career, which all the fun I make of it was pretty lucrative. They've received the great honor to follow a rabbi who turns out to be the Messiah, who turns out to be the Son of Man, who turns out to be God. But they've left home, they're traveling with him, they're forced to rely on the charity of others to eat. So Peter wants a little recognition, right? This rich young ruler won't give up all of his wealth to follow Jesus and be a disciple. So maybe Peter is trying to puff himself up again. See, I'm better than that other guy. He wouldn't give up everything, but I've given up everything. Is that really the way Jesus wants us to look at things we do with him? I mean, it's it's, it's relatively simple here, right? Jesus really wants you to tell him the great things you've done for him, right? <laughs> Jesus replied, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times over houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property with persecutions. Okay, what? If ever we doubt Jesus is a rabbi, there it was. So what did Jesus just say? It's not over. Jesus actually said, if you become a Christian, you're going to have a great home and gold, right? It's prosperity. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be rich. Uh, Oh, no. He's saying that what you sacrifice to follow Jesus in context, what we sacrifice for the gospel, for Basora, for this idea that all of humanity can be redeemed by following the example of the Son of Man, following the example of Jesus. If you do it, then all of the things that get lost in the way will be 
restored to you in a way that's a hundredfold, in, in so much of a better way. But it's going to come at a cost. Doing the right thing has a price in the world that we live. And it's the world pushing back. It's our own sinful nature pushing back. I hate to be cliche, but I think the clearest thing that indicates you're doing the right thing is that it hurts. It costs you something. Uh, there, there is a price to pay. And so Jesus is, I think, gently for him, thumping the disciples and saying, yeah, you have done a good job. You have given up things. But don't think begging for it is going to give you your reward. What we're working for is, and then he'll he'll pick up on this, and in the world to come, they will have eternal life. Uh, that's a great phrase to learn. World to come. In Hebrew, it's ha-olam. The eternity. The forever. Olam is the, the everything. Uh, ha is simply the article, the, so the everything, the world to come. That's really how Jesus defines heaven. And I think that's, that's a great grounding way. You know, a lot of times we get very pagan with our idea of heaven. That it's up in the sky, it's up in the clouds, it's, uh, the way Jesus talks about it is there's a world that we live in now, that Satan is a part of, that we're part of, we're in a fallen world. And then when we transition from this time, from this world, we go into the Ha'olam, the world to come, the, the world that is the way it's meant to be. It's this place that our treasures are stored up. It's this place where God rules uninterrupted. It's this place where our reward comes. And here Jesus is laying out this eternal life. I probably drive you crazy sometimes by uh, explaining Jesus is rabbi, Jesus is doing this, is expected. But what's very unexpected is how often Jesus talks about the new heaven, the new world to come. And this is set the sense of eternal life. This is very much Jesus. Nobody else was doing it on this level. You know, the Pharisees and others believed uh, on uh, the end of the, the world, there was a resurrection of the dead. Uh, but nobody was talking about life existing right now, that almost there's two worlds and you exist in both worlds. It gets very complicated, again, because God's trying to explain it to us. But this is this is very much Jesus, that the Jews shouldn't live just for the promised land. They shouldn't just live for the here and now. They should live for this this eternity, this eternal life that's coming. And then look at 31. But many who seem to be important now will be the least important then. And those who are considered least here will be the greatest then. So this is Jesus' typical kingdom explanation that in the world to come it's sort of flipped. Uh, Those that have surrendered a lot and given up a lot will be in a high place. In a sense, in Jesus' language, we'll have this gold in heaven. 
But those that held on to their stuff, just like this rich young ruler, uh, will not have anything. They'll have missed their opportunity. And I think God did this in a very interesting way. Of all the ancient Romans that you know, do you know their names? I mean, who of all the Romans that you know, who, who, whose name pops out to you? Caesar. Caesar. Yeah, Caesar's a dude, right? He conquered, he kicked butt. Um, his name becomes the name for emperor, right? You're Caesar, or the Germans say Kaiser. It's uh, It becomes the title for a ruler. So, yeah, we remember Caesar. What, what other Romans pop up in your name? Yeah, Pontius Pilate. Now that's interesting. I would argue that Pontius Pilate's name is mentioned more frequently than even Caesar. I mean, almost weekly, right? We're saying the name of Pontius Pilate. Now part of the the fascinating story of Pontius Pilate is that in a world of Romans that are obsessed with connection and uh, patrons and, you know, suck it up to your boss so you get a promotion. Pilate stood out as the biggest suck up amongst the Romans. I mean, he was in a category all on his own. You know, in a world that prides itself on having a connection, making a deal, a person that does it badly is not really honored, right? Pilate was just a fumbling, bumbling suck-up. He was horrible. He was sent off to Palestine, as they call it, because they really wanted him out of Rome. But he uh, he builds a temple. And I say that. He basically builds a gazebo, you know, and he calls it a temple. And he dedicates it to his boss as a living God. Now, Romans never did this. Now, Romans would ingratiate themselves. And sure, when somebody was dead, like Caesar, then they would say, oh, yes, he was a God. But it's a little crazy, isn't it, to go to your boss today and say, oh, I know you're a God. You are just amazing. Um, now, maybe your boss expects you to call him a god. I don't know. But even for the Romans, they're like, Pilate, you are an idiot. Um, so there's this little gazebo that they built in Israel, that Pilate built in uh, in Israel, in Caesarea to Caesar Augustus, who is the the sort of adopted nephew of Caesar uh, Julius Caesar. And, you know, the guy, he's just a little weasel. Um, in fact, he's so, so desperate to make his boss, make the emperor happy, that the people under him know how vulnerable he is. They manipulate him. I mean, this is what the, the, the Jews were doing or the Pharisees were doing in uh, Jerusalem, right? And they, you know, he, he tries this little game. I'm going to give you Barabbas or Jesus. Which one do you want? He's, he's weak. The one thing he can have happen is that there's a problem. There's a, a revolt in Judea because it looks bad on his resume. And so, I mean, if you can appreciate sort of the irony of this, 
Pilate wanted to be somebody. He wanted to be somebody great. And in Jesus' time, he was, for all of his faults, the power. He controlled the legions in Judea. He was the power. But today we remember him as this weak-willed, little sniveling, just weasel. Uh, And he's maybe the second most famous Roman (laughs) that people remember. Uh, one of the places I think we can show that we're going to visit when we go is a place called Caesarea, um, Maritima. This is another town that Pilate, or Herod did it, but then Pilate built it up. Um, it's right on the coast. It's beautiful. It was named after Caesar. Uh, this is a famous stella they found um, where Pilate is dedicating... I think the next slide sort of lays it out. Uh, he's dedicating this little gazebo um, to uh, Caesar. And, it, you know, it's in pretty bad condition, but it simply says, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. So there it is. Don't speak Latin, but, uh, man, they just jumble all the letters together. I don't know how how you read that. So... This is actually one of, when we go to Israel, this is one of the first stops that we make. This is just north of Tel Aviv. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing. There's amphitheater there. There's uh, a surviving room that Herod built right out on the coast. So, I mean, literally the waves are coming in at the bottom. And uh, there's incredible cool breeze. Beautiful, beautiful place. One of the secrets... Um, and it's not here, but it's not far from here. Um, there's a beach. Uh, this is actually Tel Aviv, so this would be further north of this. There's a beach where there used to be part of the palace right off the shore. And so if you go at certain times a day, uh, this is sort of the secret, um, all sorts of stuff washes out on the beach. So instead of picking up... Um, um, like seashells, you can get pottery shards. I was just there in March, and I found this. It's actually Roman glass, uh, which tells you the extreme wealth uh, that was invested there. Um, so let me pass it around. Uh, I mean, it's beautiful. I can't tell you how luxurious uh, Roman glass is. And think about any kind of glass that survived 3,000 years, or I guess 2,000 years. Um, hey, it's it's pretty good stuff. When you go to Galilee or you go to Jerusalem, you don't find Roman glass. <laughs> It's it's Tupperwareville up there, okay? It's not it's not beautiful, but um, it's this beautiful illustration. Jesus, who was a, a rabbi from the sticks, uh, followers of his teenagers that don't get it, they become some of the most influential people in the world. Peter and these disciples will change our world. Pilate, who had all the power, had all this building temples, that's all that's left. This little little rock um, for Pilate. There's, there's nothing. So really stop and think about all the stuff you do in the course of a day. Things you do for your job. Things that you do to make it work. And get through another day. What's really going to last? How do we really live into this kingdom idea that Jesus is talking about? That when you really sacrifice things and you do it for the kingdom, that's eternal life. 
That's what you're going to be known for. What are you going to be known for when you die? Go ahead and tell me, because I may have to do your funeral. No, I'm kidding. That's terrible. I don't want to do any of your funerals. That'd be too hard. But what? what? Did you? Yeah, hopefully. What kind of father-in-law are you going to be remembered as? Good one? Bad one? Good father? Good co-worker? What kind of friend? If we can reach out and really be there when they need help, really show them the truth of the gospel, not just come to church. It's this kind of way that Jesus really wants us to think. You want to be the Peter, the the fisherman with not a lot of education, and not the pilot. They remember Pilate because he's an idiot. They remember Peter because of what he taught the world. Let me stop there. Questions? All right. Either doing a good job or a bad job. So 32. They were now on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with dread, and the people following behind them were overwhelmed with fear. So this is what I mean. This is dead man walking. This is the the final journey. In a sense, uh, Jesus did not get a return ticket uh, to go back to Galilee. They know they know this is it. What did you think when your parents first started talking about dying? Or, or have they? I mean, what do you what do you do? <laughs> it's
Oh, six years for senior. Maybe. Yeah, about six years for senior. And your sister asked Debbie, says, are you afraid to die? And Debbie said, no, I'm a Christian. And of course, Debbie had been afflicted with muscular dystrophy. Mm-hmm. Her life would be shortened somewhat. She died when she was 60, almost 61. And it, then Debbie asked her, her sister, are you afraid to die? I'm horrified. And Debbie said, well, why? And she said, well, I know you and Steve will go to heaven, but I'm not sure I will. Because you know, she, she claimed to be an atheist or an agnostic. And uh, there's your answer. Right. Fear leads us to decisions we should make sometimes. Yeah. As morbid as it sounds, we really should think about dying, how we die, what's going to happen. And if you have kids, I think one of the best things you can teach them is how to die. Uh, you're you're gonna they're gonna watch you and how you face it and how you do it. Is Jesus afraid to die? Not happy about it. Yeah. I think, in my opinion, there's there's fear, there's angst, and maybe not death, but the process he's going to go through, right? He doesn't get to close his eyes and just poop. Okay, I'm in heaven. Um, it's it's a little bit more than that. So, lest we don't think that the, the disciples are listening, uh, they know that Jesus thinks this is the final journey. They know with a persecution talk, what he said before, that this is, this is gonna be rough. They're still with him. Which is good. Because they will bolt when the blood starts to flow, in a sense. But they're, they're still, they're still going. They're, they're making this, this journey. But there is this mood, this shadow over the group. And it's interesting to look at the group just for a second. Who all is with Jesus? What they just described to us? Yeah, so we have Jesus, he's out walking front. And then who is who is there? Disciples and then other followers. Right. And this really seems to be the latter half of Jesus' ministry that he's been traveling with his disciples, but there's also other people that have attached themselves. So like Mark would be in that other group. His mother is one of the financial supporters of Jesus. And uh, so she seems to be following. So he's he's got some some following. But continue on. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once again began to describe everything that was about to happen in Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, he told them, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. It's interesting. He's talking about himself in third person. It's always bad. And hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, beat him with their whips, and kill him. 
Okay, does this sound like David Koresh? I mean, is this the Branch Davidians? Okay, oh, Jesus has lost it. He's talking about the end. The FBI's coming. They're going to... How do you, how do they really process this? Well, he's not speaking in metaphors this time. <laughs> he is not. <laughs> yes. It's like, boys, we're in crunch time. You, you got to get this. Yeah. Now remember the importance of the phrase son of man. This is not uh, just, you know, the Messiah. This is not just a rabbi. This is not uh, just a him. I mean, this is the second power in heaven. This is the prophetic image that they have looked for. Who is the person that will stand next to God on judgment day? And that's that's the phrase, son of man, from Daniel. One standing next to God that looked like unto the form of a man, son of man. Does, that, does the word son of man translate differently in other writings, other... Yeah, actually, it, it's I find it fascinating. It's in Aramaic because it comes from Daniel. Um, so, like in Hebrew, you would say Bar Hadam, uh, son of Adam. But in Aramaic, they say Bene or um, Bar Enosh. Um, Enosh is a kind of obscure, but it's an Aramaic word. Uh, when Abraham, or when Abraham, when Adam has kids, he has a third child, Seth, that we descend from, and Seth's children is Enosh. And it means the wasted ones, or the, the losers. <laughs> and so that becomes the default definition of, of humanity in Aramaic. We're the losers. <laughs> you know, we're not, uh, Seth, or we're not, uh, uh, Cain, we're not Abel, we're Enosh. So, the son of people, the son of the failed ones. It's it's interesting. But like the kingdom, right, it becomes this flip. The definition of God becomes the son of, of humans. Uh, so it's it's a powerful term. Why does all this have to happen? And why, for God's sake, is Jesus walking into this trap? Who knows what's coming? Well, but it, it, He's voluntarily doing it. He's doing it, but yeah, you're walking to the gas chamber, buddy. I mean, because of the path humanity is on, it's going to take his sacrifice to keep it going. Right. But, yeah, but it's not like Jesus, you know, pulls out the plot and says, oh, okay. This was prophesied, so I gotta do it. I mean, prophecy works the other way around, right? He did it, that was prophesied. It's not prophecy telling him what to do. But, yeah, it is, it is prophesied. I mean, he is, he is the lamb. He is, uh, the sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. But hopefully as we finish this section of Mark, we can really see Jesus, like we talked about on Sunday, is starting the process of us being saved. He's not ending it. And a lot of times I think we Christians, we get it backwards. We think this is one and done. Jesus is going to do this and then everything's fine. I think if that was really the case, Jesus would have left the disciples in Galilee. Because it was too dangerous for them. What he's trying to do is say, watch me. 
I'm going to stare down the greatest evil our world has right now, which is Rome. And they're going to do their absolute worst to me. And they, in fact, are going to hurt me, torture me, and then they're going to kill me. But what he really wants them to hear, I dropped the last part of the verse, but after three days, he, the Son of Man, will rise again. Not at the end of days, not in the days of Elijah, but after three days, um, this, after I'm completely dead. That's what the three days implies. Um, they didn't obviously have medical doctors, and so sometimes they got it wrong. Uh, Jews tend to build people really, bury people really, really fast. But three days is kind of the rule of make sure grandma's not going to pop up before we put her in a cave. <laughs> okay, so three days, you're really, really dead. But he's saying, I want you to see this. Because what I do, you can do. I want you to be the stewards of my teaching to teach the world that this is actually the Basora. That you look in the face of evil, that's your own evil, and the evil for the world, and you take its worst. You don't respond then in turn with your own violence, your own hatred. He doesn't tell the disciples, and when they kill me, you burn down Jerusalem. You start protests, you kill whoever. I mean, none of that. Watch what's going to happen. Watch how God and good really work in this world. They're going to do their worst, and I'm going to overcome it. The world to come, the Ha'olam, is better, is greater than the world we live on. They will not remember Pilate, except for he was an idiot, but they will remember Peter. We all are going to die in here. And it's part of that question, how are you going to die? What are you going to do before it? And in a sense, can you defeat your own demons, your own sins? Can we take the evil of this world and do battle with it so that our kids don't have to? And I've been really studying with our three committees. Our church is looking forward to what we're going to try to do in the future. And I ran across this quote um, on early synagogues. And the greatest prayer that they had in synagogues was that let us do God's will so that our children don't repeat our sins. Wow. That's good for the church. If we can figure out in with us, with our generation right now, what our church is going to do, imagine how much we could bless our kids so that they don't ever have to go through disaffiliation again or they don't ever have to, you know, see a bureaucracy that's grown out of control. Um, it's choppy water in our culture right now, isn't it? Um, if we as a church can figure this out, then your grandkids may not even understand. I heard this insult. It's so good. Forgive me. Um, one kid saying to this to another, you know what? Your dad buys Budweiser at Target. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or a Bud Light. Bud Light. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Bud Light at Target. Um, wouldn't it be great if our grandkids thought, 
what in the world are you talking about? That's the, that's the, why don't I know that? But wouldn't that be a great world? Um, where all that stuff is so far behind us. Um, Peter was on the road to do that. Yeah. A pastor once described this part of Mark, the return home. He called it the ride home. They've been to Disneyland. They've seen all the miracles. Dad's driving the car and he's shouting over his shoulder to the kids in the back. <laughs> you got to clean up the dog poop. You got to do your homework. It's, you got to keep going. Right, right. Back to following the word, the road, the road that I've set for you. Yeah, and I I like that analogy because it really does explain to the kids. You know, I'm going to do my final act, and then you're up. Like he said, you will do greater things. We're, we're the greater things. What we can do now collectively as the body of Christ, he starts the fire and we're then to make it bigger. It's, it's powerful. Look at verse 35. So kids being kids, then James and John, the son of Zebedee, uh, came over and spoke to him. Rabbi, they said, uh, we want you to do us a favor. Uh, what is it? Jesus asked. Um, in your glorious kingdom, we want to sit in the place of honor next to you. So uh, they they get it's coming down and he's going to die. And they hear he's coming back. And they're thinking, oh, this is it. Uh, and so this is pretty typical uh, Near Eastern behavior that they... They ask for boons from favors, and then so we'll we'll get into the next next week. But um, in a sense, they're completely missing the point. They're following the story, right? Oh, it's all coming down. It's going to hit the fan. So here here we go. Um, can you can you make me someone great? And so Jesus is like, oh, but we'll stop there. Hard hard candy here from Jesus. Any questions, comments? Would you have stayed? I feel like part of the reason they stayed is because they, while he was telling them exactly what was going to happen, they still in their minds had a different expectation of what was going to transpire. Right. Because they're thinking Savior, they're thinking something big, like they're thinking he's going to do something. And that's why they are still writing this thing out because they don't fully grasp exactly what he's telling them. Right. He's still going to get on the white horse with the sword. <laughs> well, and are we any different? You know, Jesus is going to come back and fix everything. You know, a couple things betray that got left out. I think Judas's mind starts to turn, and we'll talk about him later. Oh. Well, you know, maybe we could force Jesus to do something. We know Peter will come completely crazy with the sword. And at least James and John are thinking about, uh, how, how do I get in charge? Um, but the whip thing should have stood out to them. Um, we'll talk about this in, in detail, but Roman scourge is not just like, I had a bull whip as a kid from Wadis. Oh my gosh, that is the greatest toy ever. I about murdered my sister with it, but I would just in the backyard swing bull high. Woo-hoo! So I always thought that's what it was. I mean, just this long, 
but it's it's a cat of nine tails. They're short. You've seen him, right? And so it has bone and metal on the back, and it's a grabber. And so when the Romans scourge you, the first time they say they get skin, the second time they get muscle, and then they get into bone. Romans don't whip, don't scourge a person and crucify a person. They don't do it together because... Basically, a scourge will kill you. It's a rare person that describes it or survives it. If you do, you're just this mass of scar tissue. You know, if Jesus had survived the crucifixion, he probably could never have walked again. He probably would have been an invalid uh, because of what this scourge does to the body. Uh, it just, they become a scar tissue. Um, they don't do this because they want you to live like a week on the cross. They want to get their maximum publicity of humiliating you. Jesus barely makes it three hours because he's in such bad shape. So it's interesting they don't get this, um, that he's going to be scourged and he's going to be crucified. Again, all these things, they go past them because the wheels are turning. What? What am I going to do? What am I going to get out of it? May it never be of us that when... Jesus says something to us. We just start working our angle. But I'm sorry. When God said that he would never flood the earth again, was that correlated to him giving us Jesus? Oh, that's, that's a good connection. Yeah, yeah. That he, it was for cleansing purposes. Yep. So, and he said he'd never flood the earth again. And it just hurt him too much. So I was thinking, maybe he gave us Jesus. Yeah, it's definitely a different way of solving the problem. Um, he's not going to do surgery to cut away the problem. He's going to try to engage it and change it. Yeah. Others? Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that we are on the journey with you. But this morning as we've sat down and picked up our coffee, we headed to Jerusalem. A time in which you set for us to see, not just Peter and James and John, but you wanted us to see this. That those deep, dark places in our life and the big, horrible mountains in our world can be overcome by the power that you showed that day. Father God, may we find that strength. May we find that within us as we live today. May we see your hand all around working. And may we join our hand with yours to say what we must say, to share the gospel, to offer grace, to offer love, to offer another chance, not just to be an animal that talks, but to be a follower of Jesus. And, oh Lord, it is our heartfelt prayer that as we struggle through these things, we will do that which will save our kids. We will end our mistakes with us and make it so that our church, our state, our country deal with its sins so our kids don't have to. Help us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.